fear caused Israel to take 40 years to get to what should have taken 11 days. Where were they going? They were going to inherit their promise that was originally given to Abraham hundreds of years before. This was history of the cosmos significant. And the original generation that was supposed to go down as the faithful generation who inherited the land and the generation that went from slavery to promise became the generation of wanderers in a lonely wilderness. Why? Because on the edge of inheriting everything, they doubted God was good enough and faithful enough to come through. Y'all with me? Talking about the Israelites going into the promised land. This makes no philosophical sense to me. Parting the sea before them is, in my mind, a lot more difficult than giving them the land. Just in my mind, parting the sea for them to walk across, to me, is a lot more difficult than him giving them possession of a land. Does anybody else think, I mean, right? Parting a sea. I, if I'm strong enough, I can take possession of a land. I cannot part a sea. A lot more difficult. So how is it, how is it that they saw with their very own eyes the sea parting, manna appearing, and quail, water pouring from a rock, etc., and failed to believe he could give them the promised land. How was that possible? I would ask the question, what was really going on in their thinking? I wonder if because they were born and raised in slavery, being told they were worthless, if their doubt came from a place of broken identity? Could it be because they still saw themselves as slaves, they felt unworthy to have the promise of such heroes in their possession? I, I just, I, literally, I feel this just electricity flowing through me. So y'all just hang with me. I'm going to have fun today. Whether or not you guys do, that's up to you. Okay? Listen, I mean, contrast the original generation with the next generation who actually took possession of the land. The second generation, in full faith, went right in and took the land with Joshua. Not one doubt. The Lord gets Joshua, he says, Moses is dead, now is your time, lead the people in, and they march right in. They walk around the walls of Jericho, they fall, they go in, they take land, land, and land, and by the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua's saying, your tribe take that piece, your tribe take that piece, your tribe take that piece, and he's allotting land. Full faith. So how is it that the original generation feared for their lives after seeing the Red Sea parting, manna appearing, water coming from a rock, how is it that they feared for their lives on the edge 
of the promise, but the second generation who saw mostly none of that walked right in and took it. How is that possible? One difference, one difference. The second generation didn't grow up in slavery. This generation grew up in freedom. They grew up in the wilderness where Deuteronomy 2.7 says, these 40 years in the wilderness, the Lord your God has been with you and you have lacked nothing. That's what Deuteronomy 2.7 says. So you have one generation who grew up in Egypt being slaves, being told they were worthless. And then you have another generation who's growing up in the wilderness, the wilderness. And all they know is God being with them and lacking nothing. This is the danger of us not letting who we were die in the wilderness. You'll get close to what you were destined to inherit and quit because subconsciously you'll see yourself as unworthy. You'll only see yourself as unworthy if the slave that you were in sin is still breathing within. Y'all are real quiet today. I wonder if doubt, here we go. You all ready to take a leap with me? I'm going to take a lot of leaps today, but y'all just going to have to go with me or cracker barrels open. I wonder if doubt and faith are really simply fruit of who we see ourselves as. What if men and women of great faith were really men and women just convinced of who they were? <laughs> One generation doubted his goodness. The other acted because of his goodness. One generation was slaves in Egypt. The other generation was wild ones born in the wilderness of endless supply. It's easy to trust when all you know is freedom. It's difficult to trust when you try to see yourself as free without first ridding yourself of the slave. So here, here we go. Issues of faith and fear are always issues of identity. If I see myself as worthy, I'll have no issue believing. If I see myself as unworthy, I'll always have issues believing. Jesus never saw himself as less than who he was, and his faith was never less than explosive. I don't need to strive for more faith. I told you I'm going to take some leaps. I do not need to strive to have more faith. You can't even do that anyway. Faith comes from God. That's the Greek word, pistis, is something that is from God that we trust in. So you can't produce faith anyway. You can produce English believing. But we're not talking about the English. We're talking about the Greek scripture. You with me? So I don't need to strive for more faith. I need to be convinced of who I am. And then the Lord spoke some stuff to me that I'm going to hold for myself. Deuteronomy 1, and let me find where I started on this whole thing. Deuteronomy 1, we're going to start at verse 1. 
and, uh, and then we're just going to read, read through. Deuteronomy 1. Y'all give me a second. Here we go. Okay. Perfect. Deuteronomy 1, verse 1. This is Moses speaking. A lot of scholars don't get too caught up on what I'm about to say, but I just want to give you the full information. A lot of scholars believe that the book of Deuteronomy possibly was written later on down the road when King Josiah discovers the law in the temple, and, uh, and they write this to basically bring context to what they have found. Either way, I think it's unbelievable. All right, so Moses is speaking here. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1 says this, These are the words that Moses spoke to all the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness east of the Jordan River. Okay? So they're in the east of the Jordan River means right before east of the promised land. They crossed the Jordan River to go into the promised land. So in the wilderness, they were camped in the Jordan Valley near Suf between Paran on one side and Tophel, Laban, Hezeroth, and Dezahab on the other. Normally, listen, just, just listen to this. Normally, it takes only 11 days to travel from Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, going by way of Mount Seir. So in other words, what he's saying is, normally it would take 11 days to get from where they were to where they were going. 11 days. But 40 years after the Israelites left Egypt on the first day of the 11th month, Moses addressed the people of Israel, telling them everything the Lord had commanded him to say. This took place after he had defeated King Sion of the Amorites, who had ruled in Heshbon, and King Og of Bashan, who had ruled in Ashtaroth and Edri. While the Israelites were in the land of Moab, east of the Jordan River, Moses carefully explained the Lord's instructions as follows. Just a real quick note, the land of Moab is where Ruth comes from. She's a Moabite that I taught on a couple of weeks ago. We're going to get to Ruth next week, probably. Finish up Ruth. Jump ahead to 19. Verse 19, chapter 1. Then, just as the Lord our God commanded us, we left Mount Sinai and traveled through the great and terrifying wilderness, as you yourselves remember, and headed toward the hill country of the Amorites. When we arrived at Kadesh Barnea, I said to you, you have now reached the hill country of the Amorites that the Lord our God is giving us. Look, he has placed the land in front of you. Go and occupy it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Don't be afraid and don't be discouraged. But you all came to me. He's recounting the past. But you all came to me and said, this is their first issue. Okay, he says, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. Let's go take the land. Go and occupy the land. But you all came to me and said, first, before we do that, Let's send out scouts to explore the land for us. They will advise us on the best route to take and which towns we should enter. Let me stop right here. If you're not convinced of who you are, you'll make doubt sound like a good plan. They didn't send, they, they didn't send scouts in to find which route would be the best one to take. You know why they sent scouts in? Because they were scared for their lives and wanted to see how 
possible it was for them to take this land. Right? You'll, you'll do this all the time. The Lord will call you to do something, and in your head, you'll start convincing yourself of why you don't need to do that, and the argument will sound awesome. But it'll be wrong, and mostly a lie. Right? I, man, I, man, I don't, you know, I, I just, I can't give because I give to the National uh, Army or whatever, the Salvation Army. Uh, people say that all the time, brother, I don't tithe because I give to the Salvation Army. That ain't your, that ain't your tithe. Right? So it sounds great. It sounds great. I don't, I don't need to go to church. I'm the church wherever I go. No, 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 no. Just to be clear, no. Right? You carry the church with you wherever you go, but you're not the church. That will require you to be multiple people because the church is only where two or more are gathered in his name, the ecclesia, the governmental body, right? So we buy into these lies that sound great. They sound awesome. They're just not true. So they're doubting who they are, but they say, first, let's send out scouts in the land. There's a gnat up here. It's about to drive me crazy. Devil, you're a liar. There he goes. <laughs> Poor gnat. First, he was standing on tiptoe waiting, and I just crushed him. First, <laughs> let's send out scouts to explore the land for us. They will advise us on the best route to take and which towns we should enter. This seemed like a good idea to me. So I chose 12 scouts, one from each of your tribes. They headed for the hill country and came to the valley of Eskol and explored it. When they picked some of its fruit and brought it back to us, and they reported to us, the land the Lord our God has given us is indeed a good land. Yeah, go figure. That's what he said. Right? But, but, you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and refused to go in. Why? You complained in your tents and said, the Lord must hate us. What? Right? Were you not there when the sea split? He must hate you. They, they came back and said, the, the land the Lord has given us, it's a good land. He was right. Pretty good land. And then you go in your tent. And the Lord, the Lord must hate us. He must think we're nothing. Right? See, see, all this sounds crazy. We do this. Hello, we do this, okay? You complain in your tent. He, he must hate us. That's why he's brought us here from Egypt, <laughs> to hand us over to the Amorites to be slaughtered. Where can we go? Our brothers have, de listen to this, our brothers have demoralized us with their report. They tell us, the people of the land are taller and more powerful than we are. Their towns are large and with walls rising high into the sky, we even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak, or Anak. But I said to you, don't be shocked or afraid of them. The Lord your God is going ahead of you, and he will fight for you, just as you have seen him do in Egypt. And you saw how the Lord your God cared for you all along the way as you travel through the wilderness, just as a father cares for his child, now he has brought you to this place. But even after all he did, you refused to trust the Lord your God. 
who goes before you looking for the best places to camp, guiding you with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. When the Lord heard your complaining, he became very angry. I would too. And he solemnly swore, not one of this wicked generation will live to see the good land that I swore to your ancestors. Except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, he will see this land because he has followed the Lord completely. I will give to him and his descendants some of the very land he explored during his scouting mission. The Lord was also angry with me because of you. That's a little bit of a skewed thing. Moses was kind of unfaithful too. So uh, anytime you're writing about yourself, you always give the impression of the better side of you, but that's all right. We still love Moses. The Lord was angry with me because of you. He was angry with you because you struck a rock. He told you not to strike. Anyway, he said to me, Moses, not even you will enter the promised land. Instead, your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will lead the people into the land. Encourage him, for he will lead Israel as they take possession of it. I will give the land to your... Man, this, this, this just stirs me up right here. I will give the land to your little ones, your innocent children. You were afraid that they would be captured but they will be the ones who occupy it. As, you, as for you, turn around and go on back through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. There's a, there's a, a, a place where the Israelites are coming through the, uh, through the wilderness and they make the statement that their kids are going to be destroyed because they're afraid of who they're facing. All right. So that's why the Lord comes on the back end and he says, and there's, if you read it in the NRSV, it says it way better than this. But he, he basically says, the kids you thought were going to be slaughtered, I'm going to give them this land. As for you, turn around and go back to the wilderness toward the Red Sea. I'm almost done. Then you confessed. Then you confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. So you start confessing, we start losing stuff. Just kidding. We have sinned against the Lord. We will go into the land and fight for it as the Lord our God has commanded us. Okay? So now that he says, turn around and go back to the wilderness, it's like a kid, you know what I mean? It's like, well, now you're not going to have this, you know, sucker because of what you did. No, 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 I'm sorry. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. You know what I mean? That's what kids do, right? That's, he says, turn around and go back to the wilderness. Wait, we'll go. We'll go and fight for it as the Lord our God has commanded us. So your men strapped on their weapons, thinking it would be easy to attack the hill country. But the Lord told me to tell you, do not attack, for I am not with you. If you go ahead on your own, you will be crushed by your enemy, Salah. If you go ahead on your own, you will be crushed by your enemies. This is what I told you, but you would not listen Instead, you again rebelled against the Lord's command and arrogantly went into the hill country to fight. But the Amorites who lived there came out against you like a swarm of bees. Not good. They chased and battered you all the way from Seir to Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but he refused to listen, so you stayed there at Kadesh for a long time. The sight 
of what we call storms gives people amnesia. The sight of difficulty gives people amnesia to what the Lord has already brought you through. He's brought you through difficulty before, and yet every time you see difficulty, you doubt whether or not he's going to bring you through this time. Right? Storms cause amnesia. I would say, I would say, <clears throat> sight here, so the sight of storms gives people amnesia, because to the believer, a storm that others might drown in, we walk on top of. Matthew 14, 22 through 33, there are waves crashing all on the boat where the disciples are. They see Jesus come walk on the water, walking on top of what's drowning their boat, okay? And Peter, once they figure out it's not a ghost, it's actually Jesus, uh, which might be a cool little Halloween thing. Maybe we should do that one day. Uh, I told a joke about this. I, I, I thought about not sharing it, but I think it's pretty funny. Uh, you know, growing up, we used to do a haunted house in one of the churches we grew up in. <laughs> this is not a joke. And uh, scare the living daylights out of people all the way through. And then at the end, there was a pastor waiting. And when they were scared, we'd be like, all right, if you don't want to face this for eternity, believe. Am I right? Am I, not, am I right? Right, Matt? I'm pretty sure we were in a couple of those. And uh, <laughs> but see, this is, what, this is what we do. Okay, so... They look, they realize it's not a ghost, they realize it's Jesus. And then Peter does something interesting, okay? Listen, one moment, if you go back, and, I'm not going to do this. If you go back and read this, one moment, they're screaming for their lives. They're terrified. This is going to drown us. We're dead, you know, all the other stuff. The next moment, Peter sees Jesus and says, Lord, if it's you, call me out on the water with you. And he says, come on. So Peter, who was just screaming like a girl a few minutes ago, is now climbing out of the boat on the same storm and is just walking right on top of the water. Now, when I was a kid, we tried to walk on water all the time. That's what we did as kids that grew up in church is, you know, we would have a pool. Some of y'all have heard me tell this. We'd have a pool. We'd take off and then run as fast as humanly possible trying to see who could take the most steps on water. That's what we did gr growing up. And even this week while we're on the beach, I'm just be honest with you. I'm walking up to the beach and I'm looking around and I'm like, you know, taking steps, and I didn't walk on water, but I might as well try. And so, um, so Peter's walking on water, right, as he's looking at Jesus. Then he has a moment, oh, wait, I forgot. There's a storm going on. So he looks down at the storm, and what happens? He starts to sink. He hello? So the ones who have their eyes on Jesus walk on top of what is killing everybody else. Right? So storms are, that's why I say all the time, storms are irrelevant to believers. It don't matter how big the storm is, as long as your eyes are on Jesus, you will 100% of the time walk on top of what is killing everybody else. Hello, COVID. Hello, everything else in 2020. If we're getting down in the dirt with how everybody else is feeling about COVID, about having to stay home, et cetera, et cetera, what are we doing? We're identifying that we're not ones who have our eyes locked on Jesus, that we're ones looking around at the storm saying, man, this thing is getting bad. And we wonder why we're drowning. I say that for me because I've done that this year. I've done that. I don't know about you. I have done that. When we closed the church, which we should have never done, 
Just, I mean, I'll just be honest with you. That's, we should have never done it. I think it was a smart decision back then. We should have never closed this church. Never. Anyway, that's just my belief. You don't have to agree with me. If anything, we should have been open. But we were trying to be smart. But looking back on the season, when, when, when you show up on Sundays and you are here with a couple of people and a camera, you start saying, are we going to make it? There's nobody here. Are people going to give? Right? And all of a sudden, you find yourself sinking in the storm that everybody else is sinking in until you realize, oh, wait a minute. This ain't mine. This is his. If he wants it to drown, it's going to drown. If he wants it to survive, it's going to survive, and COVID sure ain't going to stop that. Right? So instead of, for the Israelites, rejoicing in the richness of the land Yahweh had brought them to inherit, they complained about the power of those in the land that they would have to trust the Lord to defeat on their behalf. They weren't focused on the fact that it was a good land. They were focused on the fact that they would have to take care of a couple of giants to get in the land. This is what they saw on the way to Canaan, which is the promised land. This is what they saw. You ready for this? And this is just a 10,000 foot view list. There's a lot more things I could write here. They saw Egypt, who, by the way, was way more powerful than Canaan. Egypt was the superpower of the world at this point. They saw Egypt defeated by the Lord and them rescued out of slavery. So they saw that. They saw all the plagues. They saw the sea parted. They saw water pour from rocks. They saw manna and quail appear day in and day out. They saw a pillar of fire at night and a cloud at day that the Lord himself was leading them in. Yahweh spoke to them from the mountain and made a covenant with them. And Yahweh kept them healthy and protected in the deadly wilderness. They had seen Yahweh come through on and be faithful to every single word he had spoken. I personally find it hard to believe that they were simply that fickle. Primarily because of the total trust and faithfulness of their kids. I find it really, y'all with me still? Okay. I find it really difficult to believe that the, because this is how we portray them, okay? That the Israelites were just crazy. That they were just fickle that they just moved by what they saw every single time they saw it. I refuse to believe that they were just crazy because they weren't. They were knit together to be Yahweh. At this point, Yahweh's exclusive people in all the world. If anybody was going to be wise, it was going to be Yahweh's who is wisdom himself people, right? So I refuse to believe that they were just fickle, primarily because their kids weren't fickle at all. I believe there's something else at play that has hindered some of the greatest biblical and historical figures from becoming everything they were knit together to become. And it's a breakdown in identity. You will never trust the Lord to give you what you think you're unworthy of. Let me say this one more time. You will never 
trust the Lord to give you what you believe you are unworthy of. I believe they were thinking things like this. Why would he give a slave this land for nothing? I believe as they're on the edge of the land, they're starting to think, wait a minute. Why, why would he give us this? We're nothing. We were slaves. We were beaten. We worked. We're nothing. Why would he give us this? When they should have been thinking things like this. Why wouldn't he give the seed of Abraham this land for nothing? We are his chosen people. And I have a bunch of stars by this, so listen to this. Egypt does not get to identify you. I'm going to say it again. Egypt does not get to identify you. If it tries to, it's a lie. The only one with legal rights to call you anything is the one or ones, in the case of parents, who made you. The only one who could name Veda was Jordan and I. Why? Because we made her. She is ours, right? The Bible says that Yahweh, and I've said this over and over today because I wanted to hit home, knit you together in your mother's womb. He made you. Therefore, he is the only one with legal rights to identify you eternally. The only one. No one else can identify you. No one has the power to tell you you're unworthy. No one has the power to tell you you're not beautiful. No one has the power to tell you you're not talented. No one has the power to tell you any of that stuff because they didn't make you. Egypt didn't make you. They crushed you under the yoke of slavery, but Yahweh intends to release you from your slavery by being born again. And as you're born again, he's going to start telling you who you really are, that you bought into who you really were while you were under under the yoke of slavery that you should have never been under in the first place. Right? I think I said this before the service. Think about this. This is how, this is how we believe Adam. And I, I might have said this in worship. Adam, Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. Three in one. Let take that home with you today. He said, let us make man in our image, not my image. <laughs> so what does that look like? That was just a free thing. That had nothing to do with anything. This is just how my brain works. So Adam and Eve knit together, raised from the dirt. God breathes into them the complete image of God, perfect. And what do they do? The Lord says, there's a tree right there. You can have everything else. That tree right there, don't eat that. Everything else, you can eat. So just like all of us, when we hear you can't have something, what's the first thing we want to do? Go get it. And so, you know, you tell Veda, like, hey, you can't have that. And then the rest of the day is like, I've got to have that. Um, that's just how we are, right? And so it shouldn't be, by the way. So there's a tree. It's the only one. So Eve walks up one day, sitting around. She should have chopped it down when he said that. He should have chopped it down. Sitting around, and they hear the whispers. You know, you know why the Lord doesn't want you to have that tree, right? You'll be like him. They were already like him, right? You'll be like him. So they start buying into the lie that Yahweh had withheld something from them. Am I right? 
right? And if we take a bite of this fruit, then we'll get to choose things on our own and we won't withhold anything from us, right? So she takes it, she gives it to Adam, he bites it, and what happens? What happens? It sends all of humanity in a direction toward sin and evil and death. By what? And I don't want to downplay it, but by what? Eating a bite of a fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. Now, I do want to downplay it as it relates to the cross, though. Because if one man and one woman, who are actually one in marriage, so let's just say if one person, if one person being disobedient to eat something they weren't designed to eat, how much more freedom comes from the Son of God in flesh go into a tree, dying, saying it is finished, and rising again and giving us the keys. How much more freedom does that buy us than how much freedom Adam lost us? See, this is what we think. We think, this, this makes my, let me just help you, this makes my, all my reform buddies squirm because the first thing that they'll teach you is total depravity. How many of y'all, are, are y'all, anybody else in seminary in this room? Praise the Lord, Amen. Okay, one of the first things you'll learn in seminary, one of the first things you'll learn is total depravity. What that means is that man is worthless, we're a piece of junk, we're nothing, but thank God. That's, that's, that's what they teach you. That's the, one of the first things they teach you. And for the ones who were lucky enough to be predestined, then buddy, they're on their way and everybody else is doomed. That, that's right. And, and here's what I'm saying. That means what we have to do is we have to take what Adam did and elevate it way up here and then take what Jesus did and crumble it under our feet and say it was nothing. If Adam and his disobedience is still the topic of what we're teaching people, we have missed it. I don't, listen, I'm, Adam and his disobedience, that's whatever. I'm focused on the obedience of Yeshua, the Son of God, who came in the flesh to bear mine and your image so that we, being born again, could bear his image. That's what we were designed for. We weren't designed to be people who are totally depraved, but thank the Lord he gave us grace. That's not what we were designed for. We were designed to be people who walk hand in hand, mouth to mouth, him in us in the cool of the day until we believe everything he did and greater things we can do. That's what we were designed for. That the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead has quickened our mortal bodies. Not total depravity. This fires me up because this is what people are buying into today, that we are absolutely nothing, that we're trash, but thank the Lord for grace. Grace is not the Lord covering up your trash. Grace is him staring your trash in the eye until you dare to take your nasty robes and trade them for his robe of righteousness. But when you put the robe of righteousness on, you better not ever pick up the rags again. I, man, I feel this. Y'all about to hear me speak in tongues all over the web. <laughs> Lord, <laughs> Egypt doesn't get to identify you. Egypt can lie to you and tell you you're a slave, but at the end of the day, who you really are is Abraham's seed and heirs of the promise. That's Galatians 3.29. Every single person that believes in Jesus is Abraham's seed and heirs of Abraham's promise. That's what Galatians says. 
Now, one word about the fall of Adam in that. Hello? In fact, I, if, I could, if I had time, I'd prove to you that Adam still had just as much of a relationship with Jesus and the Godhead after the fall as he did before. They just weren't in the garden. I could prove it to you. I don't have time. I will one day. We, see, we think Adam fell, and all of a sudden God was like, all right, you're on your own. No, no, no. If you keep reading through Genesis, Adam had a great relationship with the Lord. They just weren't in the garden. Right? And he gave birth down the line to Enoch, who was in such communion with God that one day the Lord said, I'm going to just take him. And then 10 generations down the road from Adam, there's a man named Noah who is so righteous that the Lord completely started over in humanity so that Noah could be the seed of all the rest of humanity. Right? That don't sound like depraved to me. We're going to start a college one day. <clears throat> Here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. If all you have ever heard is what Egypt calls you, you'll start to believe that slave is actually who you are. Now listen to this. Listen to this. You'll start to build a mask that doesn't, like the religious one, make you false perfection. You'll actually start to build a mask that actually makes you false defective. I, I, I just need to say this one more time, okay? If you hear what Egypt, and by Egypt, I'm talking about who you were, okay? If you haven't made those connections. If you hear what Egypt calls you enough without hearing anything else, you'll start to believe you are what Egypt says you are. And as you start to believe that, you'll actually start to manufacture a mask that isn't like the religious one that's fake perfection, you'll start to actually manufacture a mask that is fake defective. So, so you'll, be, you'll be a uh, believer in the righteousness of God, but you'll start saying things like, I'm nothing but just a sinner. It's a lie, but you'll say that. Because you're building a mask to match what the world has called you for so long that you've actually started to believe is who you are. So you'll never take the robe of righteousness that calls you perfect because you're so holding tightly to the filthy rags that the world has told you you are that you refuse to let them go because you believe if you let them go that you'll be nothing when actually if you let them go, you'll be able to fully inherit the robe you were designed to wear. You can, you can actually listen to a lie so often that you'll actually begin to believe it's truth. And when that happens, you'll see the lie as truth and the truth as a lie. So we have religions today within Christianity. We have denominations that are building up this whole depravity theology based on the fact that we have actually believed a lie so often we believe it's truth. And if that lie is truth, then that means the truth is actually a lie. So we've got to reform theology to match the fact that we believe a lie. If you're watching this, I love you. And if you're mad at me, that's totally cool. There's a lot of other people doing live streams right now too. This is where so many Christians today are. Sin and the world and mainly religion have told them that they're worthless so often that they actually believe it's true. Hence the sayings like, just a sinner saved by grace. And then other sayings like, I've, pastors say this all the time, I'm just a mess, but I'm his mess. 
Anybody else ever heard that? I've heard many pastors, I'm, I'm just a mess, but thank goodness I'm his mess. No, 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 no. If you're a mess, that means the cross made you a mess. And I promise you the cross didn't make you a mess. The world made you a mess, but the cross did not make you a mess. Man. Those are funny. Those sayings are funny and tweetable, but they are not true. You're either the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, co-seated as a co-heir with Jesus with the same power that raised him from the dead living in you, or you're just a sinner. I'm going to call you to be something. Pick one. You cannot be both. Today, if you're here, if you're in this room, you're either, you have to pick. You're either going to be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and perfect in his eyes, or you're going to be just a sinner saved by grace. But you've got to pick one. Because this whole living in between with this false humility thing is costing the church people who are saying we don't believe in God anymore when what they actually don't believe in anymore is the church. It's not that they don't believe in God anymore. It's because they've been in the church so long searching for God and have not found him. That, that's what it is. We see people leaving the church at an astronomical rate right now. See people just flying out the doors of the church. Well, I guess not out the doors because all the churches are closed. But turning off the live stream of churches all over the world. We see it happening right now. You know why? You know why? Because we are not finding Yahweh in the midst of his image bearers. That should be effortless. People should walk into the room and say, I see God there and 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 there. This is who I'm actually supposed to be. Effortless. Somebody should be able to go to the coffee table, and I say this because, Kyle, you do this very great. Somebody should be able to go get some coffee, lock eyes with Kyle, and say, that's what I'm designed to be. Without ever saying a word. Does not Paul say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? So Paul says. Paul goes a step further, and he says, don't imitate. He, he's, at one point, he says, imitate Christ. But then there's another point in a letter that's written later on where this time he doesn't say imitate Christ. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, I've so, joined to my, I've so joined my life to his that if you imitate me, you'll be imitating him. <laughs> I, I just feel like teaching today. Ephesians 1, 7 and 1 Corinthians 6, 17, among other places, says that we have been united as one with Christ and uses marriage terminology where the two become one. So whatever you call yourself, you also have to call him for you and I and Yeshua the Christ are one. So whatever you call yourself, you have to label him as because you and him are one now, right? So if I call myself unworthy, I then got to turn around and say he's unworthy. This, this is the danger, y'all. Like worship, me knowing who I am is more worship than a lot of the songs I'll ever sing. Because if I believe I'm worthy, then I'm actually starting to give him the reward that he died for, which is me being worthy so that he could be worthy, so that he could tell me I'm worthy. And for the rest of eternity, we're going back and forth of a dance of him saying, you're perfect. No, you're perfect. No, you're perfect. No, you're perfect. And as the seraphim fly around the throne, they're saying, holy, 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 they're seeing a a different piece of his face. I believe they're looking into us and seeing another piece of his face as they sing, holy, holy, holy. I can't prove it. You can't disprove it. <laughs> right? But I'm serious. We've got to dare to believe some stuff, y'all. 
Many, many, many people don't like this stuff. I don't know why. I don't know why. Many people don't like this stuff. I believe it's because we have bought into a lie so long that this sounds like a lie. We've bought into the fact that we're worthless so long that when somebody starts to say you're actually worth everything, it makes everything in us start to just squirm. What do you mean? Do you know what I did? Don't matter what you did. He said it is finished. Don't matter. Mike Bickle says it's really dangerous to keep an account of things Yahweh doesn't keep an account of. So when you go to the Lord and talk about a sin you committed 10 years ago, he's going to look at you and say, I don't got a clue what you're talking about. Well, brother, that's, that's dangerous. No, no, no. It's dangerous to not believe and teach this because if you are not, not convinced of who you are, who he says you are, then you'll get 20 feet from the promised land and bail out because you don't think you're worthy. Brother, it's dangerous to start telling people that, you know, they're going to start abusing grace. No, 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 no. That, that's not what grace is. Grace isn't let me go sin all over the place because he'll forgive me. That's not what grace is. Grace is you are unworthy, but I'm going to make you worthy by my son. That's what grace is. So the whole holiness thing to be set apart, First Peter says, be holy as I am holy. What does that mean? It means you believe you are what he says you are because what he says you are is very similar to what he says his son is. Why? Because you and he are one. People hate this stuff. So you're telling me you're, no, I'm telling you I'm one with Jesus. Absolutely. People tell me all the time, well, so do you think you're Jesus? No, but I am one with Jesus. Now y'all getting quiet, right? This is what I'm talking about. See, all that's, I'll get Ephesians 1, 7, 1 Corinthians 6, 17. I could give you verse after verse after verse. I'm about to give you some stuff in Romans 8. See, all of this is in scripture. So if we want to do the scripture thing, and brother, it better be doctrinal truth. If we want to do the scripture thing, let's do the scripture thing. Because that is who we are. Jesus did not die for a bunch of people to believe they were nasty, messed up people, but thank the Lord for grace. He died for you to believe that everything he did, you'll do in greater things. That's his words, not mine. Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration, having the greatest encounter with God that history has ever seen. He's being transfigured right? He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you know with three other disciples, do you know what the other nine are doing? They're at the bottom of the mountain arguing with a bunch of religious people trying to cast out a devil they can't cast out. So three are witnessing the greatest encounter with God in human history. Nine are arguing with religious people, right? Y'all ready for this? Let's take a leap. Let's take a leap. So the nine are trying to cast this devil out. They can't do it. What did Jesus hear on the Mount of Transfiguration? You are my beloved son. Of all the things, of all the things that God could have spoke audibly for everybody around to hear, he chose to say again, for a second time, God speaks audibly that we know of in Scripture to Jesus and the disciples. 
for, well, the first time was with John the Baptist. Second time is right here, the mountain of transfiguration. He speaks twice. Twice. He already said this. This was his moment to say something else that was going to change the world. Or did he? The first time Jesus comes out of the water, you are my beloved son and who I am well pleased. I wish I had time to teach you why that happened. That wasn't just a random coincidence. That was a, a Jewish custom that God the Father was fulfilling that a Jewish father would have fulfilled for his son when he turned 30. I'm going I'm to teach that one day, maybe Tuesday night. But he speaks and says, you are my beloved son who I am well pleased. And Jesus is off to do his ministry, starting with beloved identity. He's on the mountain of transfiguration, about to go to the cross, about to experience everything else. He's on the mountain with Moses and Elijah and Peter, James, and John. They're up on the mountain. His clothes are glowing in the dark. And as he's there, what does God say? The Father, you are my beloved son. Y'all listen to everything he has to say. Now, Jesus hears, once again, you a reinforcement of who he is. You are my beloved son. What happens right after that? He goes down the mountain where the other nine are trying to cast out a devil that they can't cast out. He walks down and he says, y'all are such people of such little faith. If y'all had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could tell a mountain, blah, blah, blah. So he says all that stuff about their faith. And then what does Jesus do? Leave. And the devil's gone. Now, no, no, no. You ready? I'm going to take a huge leap. Was it that Jesus just had that much greater faith? He probably did. Or was it that Jesus had just had a moment of reinforcement of who he is, which caused faith to rise up so large in him that he could speak to something nobody else could speak to? Right? So we tell people all the time, you need to have more faith. I'm telling you, you'll have more faith if you believe you are who he says you are. Brother, brother, you need to believe. No, you need to believe you are who you are. Right? See, if I'm the righteousness of God, I have no issue praying for the sick because I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Right? If I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, I can pastor this church with everything the Lord tells me and not think twice about how big givers are going to respond to stuff I say. Why? Because I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If he wants to close the doors, he can close the doors. I'll work at Publix and be just as happy as you've ever seen. Right? Because th this does not define me. What defines me is being in the secret place at 5 a.m. when he starts to whisper, hey, if you've forgotten this, let me remind you that you are Joshua. The Lord, you are Joshua Adam. I have placed you in the earth for such a time as this. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's nothing you could do to make me not be pleased in you. That's what I live for. This is a great thing. But this only, I'm reading, all, everything I'm reading to you came out of a 5 a.m. secret place. I did not sit down and say, man, I really need a sermon for Sunday. If I ever do that, I promise you I won't preach a sermon that Sunday. That, that's not what this is. So why did the Israelites, or excuse me, what did the Israelites say during their whole trip through the wilderness? What's the one thing they said through the whole trip? Take us back to Egypt. Time and time and time and time again, the Israelites say, we, sh we just need, I wish you'd just take us back to Egypt. At least we had food there. 
over and over and over. Man, we're thirsty. We're, we're, we're just going to die out here. I wish we'd go back to I Egypt. And the Lord says, now you see that rock right there? It's about to become a well, and then water starts pouring out of it. And then they rejoice until three days later when they're starving. Well, I wish we'd go back to Egypt. And the Lord's saying, man, you know what Deuteronomy says? Jesus quotes this in his ministry. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus quotes this later, but that comes from the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to teach this one day. Man does not live on bread alone. What is he saying? He's saying to the Israelites who failed to be faithful in knowing who they were, you live off of everything you can see. What you need to start doing is live off of everything he has spoken to you. If your identity isn't fully exchanged to the point of rebirth, being born again, then you'll settle for the whips of Egypt rather than the milk and honey of Canaan. So who are we? Go to Romans 8, and this is where I'm going to wrap up. I told y'all I was going to end up in Romans 8 a month ago, and a month later, here we are. Romans 8, Romans 8. Matt, could you come up and play for a little bit? I'm going to just bat this volume down. I hear because we're super professional around here, and that's what we do. Um, that's good right there. Romans 8. Romans 8. This is what Paul says. All right? Anybody who's wondering who you are, you're about to find out. Romans 8, 1. So now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the anointed one. Could you back that down just a little bit more? Thank you. For the law of the spirit of life flowing through the anointing of Jesus has liberated us from the law of sin and death. That means freed us. For God has achieved what the law was unable to accomplish because the law was limited by the weakness of human nature, okay? So if you want a total depravity thing, go before Jesus. We were absolutely totally depraved before Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Yet, yet, God sent us his son in human form to identify with human weakness, Clothed with humanity, God's son gave his body to be the sin offering so that God could once and for all condemn the guilt and power of sin. So now every righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled through the anointed one living his life in us. And we are free to live, not according to our flesh, but by the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. Those who are motivated by the flesh only pursue what benefits themselves, Salah. Those who are motivated by the flesh only pursue what benefits themselves. But those who live by the impulses of the Holy Spirit are motivated to pursue spiritual realities. The other way that could be translated is things of the Holy Spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset controlled by the Spirit finds life and peace. Life and peace. In fact, the mindset focused on the flesh fights, this sound familiar, fights God's plan and refuses to submit to His direction. Does this sound like everything we just talked about, right, with the Israelites? Because it cannot. 
The, listen, the mindset focused on the flesh fights God's plan and refuses to submit to his direction because it cannot. For no matter how hard they try, God finds no pleasure with those who are controlled by the flesh. But when the Spirit of Christ empowers your life, you are not dominated by the flesh, but by the Spirit. And if you are not joined to the Spirit of the Anointed One, you are not of Him. Now Christ lives His life in you, even though your body may be dead because of the effects of sin, his life-giving spirit imparts life to you because you are fully accepted by God. Fully accepted by, by God. Yes, God raised Jesus to life, and since God's spirit of resurrection lives in you, he will also raise your dying body to life by the same spirit that breathes life into you. So then, beloved ones, the flesh has no claims on us at all, and we have no further obligation to live in obedience to it. For when you live controlled by the flesh, you are about to die. But if the life of the spirit puts to death the corrupt ways of the flesh, we then taste his abundant life. His abundant life. Almost done. The mature children of God, the weos, the mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the spirit. And you did not receive, listen to this, you did not, did not receive the spirit of religious duty the other translation is the spirit of slavery. Hello. Are y'all seeing these connections right here? I'm almost done, maybe. Right? But you have received. So you did not receive the spirit of slavery leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance enfolding you into the family of God and you will never feel orphaned for as he rises up within us our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection beloved father for the Holy Spirit makes God's fatherhood real to us as he whispers into our inmost being you are God's beloved child And since we are his true children, we qualify to share all of his treasures, for indeed we are heirs of God himself. And since we are joined to Christ, there it is, we also inherit all that he is and all that he has. We will experience being co-glorified with him, provided that we accept his sufferings as our own. And I'm going to jump ahead and finish out the chapter. Let's, let's just start at verse uh, 28, and I'm going to just read it out. Verse 28. So we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together to fit into God's perfect plan of bringing good into our lives. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his design purpose. For he knew all about us before we were born and he destined us from the beginning to share the likeness of his son. There you go. You want a verse on predestination? Here it is. 
He knew all about us before we were born and he predestined us. The other translation is sealed us or marked us from the beginning for what? To share the likeness of his son. This means the son is the oldest among a vast family of brothers and sisters who will become just like him. Just like who? Jesus. What? This isn't me. This is your Bible. Having determined our destiny ahead of time, he called us to himself and transferred his perfect righteousness to everyone he called. And those who possess his perfect righteousness, he co-glorified with his son. So what does all this mean? If God has determined to stand with us, tell me who could ever stand against us. For God has proved his love by giving us his greatest treasure, the gift of his son. And since God freely offered him up as the sacrifice for all, he certainly won't withhold from us anything else he has to give. Almost done, I promise. Who then would dare accuse those whom God has chosen in love to be his? God himself is the judge who has issued his final verdict over us. Let me be clear. God himself is the judge who has, past tense, issued his final. If it's final, does that mean there's anything else coming after this? No. So he has issued his final verdict over them. Who is them? Those who are his, born again, believers. What is the verdict? Not guilty. Not guilty. Who then is left to condemn us? Here it is. Certainly not Jesus, for he gave his life for us even more than that. He has, con listen to this language. He has conquered death and is now risen, exalted, and enthroned by God at his right hand. So how could he possibly condemn us since he is continually praying for our triumph? Who could ever separate us from the endless love of God's anointed one? Absolutely no one. For nothing in this universe has the power to diminish his love from us. Troubles, pressures, and problems are unable to come between us and heaven's love. Whew. What about persecution, deprivations, dangers, and death threats? Nope. For they are all impotent to hinder omnipotent love. Even though it is written, all day long we face death threats. For your sake, God, we are considered to be nothing more than sheep to be slaughtered. That comes out of Psalm 44. Yet even in the midst of all these things, we triumph over them all. For God has made us to be more than conquerors. For, and his demonstrated love is our glorious victory over everything. Last couple of verses. Two verses. So now I live with the confidence that there is nothing in the universe with the power to separate us from God's love. I'm convinced that his love will triumph over death, life's troubles, fallen angels, and dark rulers in the heavens. There is nothing in the present or future circumstances that can weaken his love. Hello? There is no power above us or beneath us, no power that could ever be found in the universe that can distance us from God's passionate love 
which is lavished upon us through our Lord Jesus, the anointed one. So that right there fixes all our theological issues, right? There is no distance that could ever come between us and God's love. If we think God is 5 billion miles in space, we've never tasted God's love. Because once you get a taste of it, he's so close that you can taste it every single place you go and every single thing you do. So you can love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because you know he who is love. And you don't just know him as you would know somebody on TV. That's somebody who is distanced, but they're a superstar. You know them as I know Jordan. I know things about her no one else on planet Earth knows. Why? Because I am joined in union with her. It's, the, it's God's privilege to conceal a matter, Proverbs says, and the king's privilege to search it out. He hides things just to show you things about himself that nobody else knows. Are y'all are y'all with me? Because listen, if I had any shred of me that was doing anything in order to please people, that's gone. I don't think I did, but if I did, it's gone. Because I love I love the people of this church. If if today's your first day, I love this church. And I love you so much that I refuse to let you be anything less than what he has called you. I refuse. I have failed as a pastor. I believe one day I'm going to stand before the Lord and he's not going to ask me how short my sermons were. He's not going to ask me how many phrases people tweeted. He's not going to ask me how many cool clothes I wear. And he's definitely not going to ask me how many people I got to repeat a prayer. It's not what he's going to ask me. You know what he's going to say? One, he's going to say, well done. Because you know what I'm going to do? Give the rest of my life to make sure you know who you are. And I want to make you either accept or reject what he says about you. That's what I want. I want to make the gospel so clear to you that in order to run from it, you're literally going to have to reject what he says you are. That's what I want. If you're going to leave this, you can leave all you want. If, you want, if you're going to leave this church, I'm going to make sure that you have to reject the reality that he is so present in the room, you can taste him when you walk in. That's, that's what I'm going to do because I am a leader. That's what every church on planet earth should be doing. If you walk in the doors, when you leave, you're going to have to make the decision. I'm either going to be everything he just told me I am, or I'm going to choose to not be it, but I sure ain't going to live in the middle anymore. Our failure to have our identity fully transformed will not only affect us. This is where I'm going to end. This is my last page. Will not only affect us, it will also affect our legacy. This is where I'm going to end. Most people in this room have, don't have kids. I think Tammy and uh, uh, Juliana, all you guys, Annalisa, um, Taylor, you guys are watching this, I think. So you guys have kids. But in the room, I think most of y'all for the most part, don't have kids, okay? Some of y'all do, some of y'all do. But for the majority of, especially young people, don't have kids. So for you to think in terms of legacy, it's really difficult because you don't hold your legacy. For me to think in terms of legacy, it's easy because I have my legacy right here, right? But every decision you make specifically as it relates to the Lord Every decision you make will affect the trajectory of those coming behind you. You've got to know this before you ever have a kid. So listen to this. 
the second generation of Israelites should have inherited the land from their parents and then taken it further. You with me? The first generation, this, I'm done, this is my last note. The first generation was called to take the land. The second generation was called to inherit what their parents took, right? But as we read the narrative in Deuteronomy and all throughout the Old Testament, what happens? The first generation fails to take the land. So the second generation, rather than inheriting and going further, had to do what their parents were unwilling to do. So instead of just inheriting the land, instead, because of their parents' failure to take the land as was planned, the second generation grew up in the wilderness rather than the promised land and had to take possession of the land their parents were called to take. Our kids will either inherit what we take possession of or they'll have to take possession of what we were too broken to receive. That's, that's, I'm done. Our kids will either will either inherit what we take or they'll have to take what we were too weak and broken to receive. You've got to choose today. Today, you've got to choose that. You can't wait a year. You can't wait to see how things pan out. You're not called to be a businessman or woman. You're not called to be a doctor or a lawyer or a musician or a pastor or a great ministry on the mission field. Do you know what you're called to be? The son or daughter of almighty God. And then everything else you do from that will prosper and be everything it's designed to be. But you are, we've got to stop telling people, I'm, I'm called to go somewhere. No, no, no. You're called to be something. Thing. That's what you're called to do. And then if you go somewhere from that, that's great. We've got to get people who stay rooted long enough to actually believe who they are. We, we jump around all over the place because we're disinterested and we become bored with things because we think the church is supposed to entertain us. Don't we? How many people have we heard say, I don't go to church because it's boring? Who cares? It's irrelevant. For me to say something is boring means I had to have the intention of that thing entertaining me. What's the opposite of being bored? Being entertained, right? So for me to say the church is boring, I then have to come at it from the perspective that it was supposed to be entertaining. And it was never supposed to entertain you. We have bought into the fact that I've got to, as a pastor, entertain you with 30-minute TED Talks so that you go home and feel better about yourself. That's not what I'm designed to do. There's a lot of people who do that, and they do that. I'm called to shepherd a group of people to go from glory to glory to glory, and I promise you this, I'm not going to be a Moses that strikes a rock and gets 20 feet in front of the promised land and makes all of us turn around and go into the wilderness because we were too weak to understand who we were. I'm not going to be that. You know who I'm going to be? I'm going to be Joshua, who is so infatuated with the presence of God that when Moses left the presence and went to talk to the people about what God said, Joshua hung out in the presence of the Lord. 
If they get it, they get it. If they don't get it, they don't. But I'm not leaving this place. That's who I'm going to be. And you know what's going to happen? We're going to part the Jordan River. We're going to take 12 stones as a memorial, and we're going to place them so that every generation can look back and say, that was the generation that believed who they were to the point that they took the land they were promised. Columbia's mine. Let, <laughs> let, let, me, let me say this just so everybody has a record of it. Columbia, the city of Columbia is mine. And it's yours, and it's yours, and it's yours, and it's yours. And you know what I am not going to do? Sit around and watch other people play in my land. I'm not going to sit around and let religion tell the people in my land, homeless or the richest people on planet earth in my land, I'm not going to sit around and let religion tell them who they are. I'm going to make sure that Yahweh is the one identifying them. What, what, what does that mean? What if you walk by somebody who normal people, and I say normal people, I abnormal people to me, but right? What happens when every, the people who everybody's walking by the street doing this, what happens when somebody, an image bearer, walks up to that person and says, I don't know if anybody's ever told, the, told you this, but you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're the head and not the tail. Right? Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I give to you. Oh, man. There are some religious people that need to hear that today. That you are not your mask. That you're not what people told you you are. You're not what your dad told you you were growing up. You're not who the people in school told you you were growing up. You're not who your boss tells you you are. You're not who your coworker tells you you are. You're not who your spouse tells you you are. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This is a symbol of how much he wanted you, that he would hang on a tree that he didn't deserve so that he could get a bunch of people into a relationship that we didn't deserve. It was an exchange, and I have failed to give him the reward of the exchange if I don't fully take his cross and then turn around and give him my old junkie identity in exchange for what the cross says I am, which is perfection in the eyes of Abba. Jesus tells us to approach God not as mighty heavenly father. Right? He, sa he says when you pray, when you pray, you say, Papa. That's the Greek word. It's not heavenly, almighty, all omnipotent father, which he is. It's Papa. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Papa. Could, could we get convinced that we are in a position to be able to call the one that people have feared approaching? Papa. Papa. Abba. Pops. I say this all the time. I, I don't want to be pastor. I want to be Papa. I don't care. I, listen, I don't care about being a big name pastor. In fact, I, I refuse to be a big name pastor. 
Every time I feel like my fame is growing, I'll say something else that makes people hate me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, right, I, that's not what I want to be. I, I want to be Papa. I want our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids to grow up in a church where they're running around and playing with each other, and we're a family that have so inherited the fullness of the promised land that we're not doing statistics trying to figure out what demographic needs a new Chick-fil-A-style church so that we can make a bunch of money off them. Right? Church, 19, I believe, church planting methods that are active today, 100% of them are based on business franchise models. 0% of them are based on the book of Acts. That's where we are. We care more about looking like Chick-fil-A than we do the early church. Let me bless y'all. This, what, I, what this is going to be is the book. This is going to be the early church. They broke bread together. There was no need among them. Everyone had more than enough. That's what this is going to be. We're going to store up our treasures in heaven where moths and dust do not attack it and make it decay. We're going to start storing up our treasures in heaven. We need a new building, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to store up treasures in heaven and trust that as we store up treasures in heaven, we're going to begin to receive a return from that treasure in heaven that's going to allow us to inherit what we would have otherwise had to work for. That's why we're not, we, we don't sit around and beg people for money for a building. I don't know if y'all ever noticed that. We've asked a couple of times because we need a building. And I'm even questioning, like, you know what I'm saying? We, but we don't sit around begging people for, we don't beg people for tithes. We don't beg people for money. We don't beg people for anything. And the Lord provides for us. People are blown away that we're a church of this many people and we have two full-time staff members. But the Lord has blessed us to that point, right? Because if you store your treasure in heaven and seek first the kingdom of God, all this stuff shall be added unto you. But it starts at the point of believing that you are in such a place in your identity that all of those things can be true of your life. I could go for hours, but I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. And, uh, and I want this week, uh, this, this, is, this is the most important thing I've ever taught. And I've taught some important stuff. This is the most important. We have got to get convinced of who we are. We have to get convinced of who we are. Not by circumstances, not by what's on CNN. The election's coming up. Let me tell y'all what's about to happen in this election. You ready? Just prophetically. You ready? You're about to see chaos, chaos in the world. Never in the history. When Barack Obama got elected, I remember people in my churches calling him the Antichrist. First off, I'm not going to get into that, all that stuff. But you know what I'm saying? And we thought that was bad. And then when Trump got elected, you had all these other people on another side saying that he's the Antichrist. It's amazing how we give the president the title Antichrist more than president. But depending on what's, right? I'm telling you, what's about to happen in this election, you have never seen in your life. And if we're not careful, we'll get down in the mud with everybody else instead of being so solidified in who we are that we start calling everybody else into a higher place. Because I don't care if Trump wins or Biden wins, Jesus is king. And his plans will be accomplished through the we are sons and daughters of God, whether or not Biden or whether or not Trump or whether or not Jim Bob down the street is president of the United States. Jesus is king. Right? And as long as Jesus is king, which is for eternity, I don't care what happens. I care. 
but very little, right? I'm just kidding. I do care. I do care. Everybody should vote, all that stuff. Lord, people, take my words and run. Take this word. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are not depraved. You're not depraved. Lord, help us. All right, let me pray over us. Let me pray over us, and then we'll, we'll head out. I've kept y'all long enough. Maybe not long enough. I don't know. Lord, I pray over this group of people. I pray over us as we move on in this week, as we pursue what it means to live in this, I pray that you would just begin to restructure our worlds, restructure every decision that we make to come from a place of who we are and how this is gonna reinforce who we are rather than how this affects me and how this looks and what kind of giants are in the land that I may or may not be able to take. We move by who we are and circumstances don't phase us. Storms sure don't phase us because we're built on the rock. And even if the rain and the storms and the floods and the wind come through, our house stands no matter what hits it because of what we are built on, because of who we are in our foundation interior world. And so Yahweh, we love you. We thank you. I thank you for this group of people and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.